Good evening. Welcome to this Sunday evening assembly. Have your Bible ready at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. When I have occasion to speak to young preachers or engage in a training session for young preachers, one of the things I always say is never begin a sermon with an apology. But there's an exception to that rule. If you visit our website to listen to the sermon I delivered here this morning, it will not be there because I forgot to turn on the recorder. I apologize for that. I'll try to remember to do better about that. I put a seven-minute summary of the sermon on the website, and tomorrow I plan to re-preach it in my office and put that in its entirety on the website. And I have checked, and all the equipment is on for tonight. First Peter 2, 21. So in my sermon planning a few weeks ago, I looked at my calendar and made the decision for this morning to preach on the birth of Christ. And I called attention to four things we need to know about the birth of Christ. Then the thought occurred to me, there should be something connected to that theme for this evening. And so, to keep it simple, I decided tonight I would preach on four things we need to know about the life of Christ. The life of Christ. And I do not mean to imply that there are only four things to know about the life of Christ, because when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, and even prophetic statements in the Old Testament, there are many things about Jesus Christ we need to review. But I've selected these to cover during our time tonight. Now, here's how important that is. 1 Peter 2 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. If I am to follow in his steps, that presupposes I know where his steps took him. If Christ is my master, my savior, my teacher, and my example, I have to know what he said, who he was, and how he lived. So I need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and become well acquainted with who he was and what he did and said and how he obeyed the Father, how he reacted to events and to people. We cannot be disciples of Christ if we are not students of Christ, knowing how he lived, how he acted, how he reacted. So, while I cannot be exhaustive in one Sunday evening sermon, tonight I want to focus on four things we need to know about the life of Christ. 
Number one, his life was perfect. In prophecy, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Hebrews, in 1 Peter 3.18, in everything we study and read in the Bible about Jesus Christ, we conclude his life was perfect. Now, it is hard for us to even conceive of perfection because we are imperfect and we witness imperfection in others every day. I started tonight by telling you of one of my imperfections. I want you to listen to what Isaiah the prophet said about Jesus in that well-known chapter, Isaiah 53. This is verse 9. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Never an activity of violence. No intention to be violent. No deceit in his mouth. Go with me now to Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer is establishing the value of Jesus' role as our high priest with these words in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's a thought. If I'm going to rely on someone, place my faith entirely in someone, give my life to someone, live under the complete authority of someone, I want them to be better than me. If I know I need a mediator between me and God, I want that mediator to be pure and perfect and absolutely dependable. And I want someone who can sympathize with my weaknesses, but without sin. And the Hebrew writer is saying, Jesus is perfectly qualified to be that one. And that is a fundamental proposition in the book of Hebrews. The writer is writing to convince the readers we need Jesus and Jesus is perfectly qualified to serve in that role. He has been tempted but he'd never sinned. He knows what it means to live here on the earth. But look at these three words, yet without sin. And here's the conclusion the writer takes us to in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. And to this I'm going to add 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, the perfectly righteous Son of God, who knew no sin, suffered for who? The imperfect, the unrighteous. I need to know this about him. His life was perfect. We need a spiritual leader who exhibits perfectly the life qualities, the attitude and state of mind that we need to enjoy fellowship with God. Four things we need to know about the life of Christ. His life was perfect. Number two, his love for people. Perfect love for people. His perfection wasn't sterile or impersonal or empty. He had and he has perfect love for the Father and perfect love for people. His perfect love for God as evidenced in his sinlessness that we just talked about. And that produced his perfect love for people. I didn't have room on the slide to display all the passages, all the many instances and affirmation of his perfect love for people. But here's one in John 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples, who, by the way, were not always lovable. As relates to our previous point, these men were not perfect, but he loved them. And it says he loved them to the end. It always raises this question, what about us? Well, we are included in those that he died for. And if he died for us, that was based on what? His love. Paul brought this up many times. Here's one instance in Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved Paul. Paul, who when he was Saul, before his conversion, was a persecutor of the followers of Christ. He loved Paul and all for whom he gave himself. In Romans 8.35, the strength and endurance of this love is the subject. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. His life is perfect and his love is perfect. It is so perfect it continues through all the storms of life that we navigate. Those storms cannot separate us from his love for us. Now, what impact should that have on us? What impact? In 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. Never should we talk about the love of Christ for us without talking about next what that love should do within us. So Paul wants to encourage and admonish the Christians in Corinth, and he does that with these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We, his people, ought to be moved and compelled and controlled by the truth that he loved us so much he gave himself for us. He was and is perfect And that perfection is seen in his love. I think one of the first songs most of us learned was, Jesus loves me. Number three, I'm going to read to us some from the 23rd chapter of Matthew about his opposition to sin. I think there is a popular sentimental view of Jesus that he was so nice and so loving and so agreeable he never said anything was wrong he found no fault in anyone he just overlooked the sins and false teachings current in his time that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible We need to know his opposition to sin. In Matthew 23, Jesus spoke to his disciples and the crowds who were gathered there about some of the sins and hypocritical behavior of a group of powerful men, the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm going to start in Matthew 23. I'm going to start at verse 1 and just read enough of this that we get the tone of this. And the tone of this is, and the theme of this is, his opposition to the sins of his day. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast. And the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Let's do one more paragraph. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And it goes on and on the rest of the chapter. Jesus spoke this truth because he loved the Father and he loved people who were listening to him. And it was his desire to direct light toward the darkness. He wanted to make certain people knew what was offensive to God. It was part of the perfection of his life to tell people what was wrong, what was sinful. When I read the New Testament, I can know what pleases God and what displeases God. And we should all be thankful that Jesus spoke so clearly about what we need to avoid in attitude and action. He was perfect in life, in love. And that perfection in love caused him to identify sin. Number four... We have a written record of his life. 
I'm making this the fourth point for the purpose of generating some gratitude toward Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit for giving us this record. John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, <coughs> in our expressions of gratitude to God, we generally include a lot of things. We're grateful for food, clothing, shelter. We're always grateful we can be together and worship God. How many times have we said in our prayers of gratitude, Lord, thank you for the New Testament, for the record that's been given of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. I understand that we are thankful for the, for the entire volume of Scripture, Old and New Testament, but without the New Testament, we would have prophecies without record of fulfillment. Without the New Testament, we would have the Mosaic Law, the First Covenant, without the Second Covenant. Without the New Testament, we would not be able to know fully the Savior, nor would we know how to respond to Him. John says, these things were written for us to read and believe and become followers of Jesus Christ. We know about his birth, his deity, his life and teaching because the Holy Spirit gave the writers the gospel story. We can come to Bible class. We can do daily Bible reading and never stop learning and remembering who Jesus is, what he did for us, where he is now at the right hand of God. How thankful we should be for the New Testament. He was born. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross so that we might have opportunity to be forgiven and, and have the hope of eternal life. We wouldn't know this on our own. It had to be revealed. The Holy Spirit did that and John said, these things are written for us to believe and have eternal life as that belief finds obedient expression. Back where I started. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And I recall also the passage I quoted this morning, Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. I hope that's what all of us are doing and I hope we pray and thank God for Jesus and for the record that we have in the New Testament. Let's be standing as we sing.